Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Ambassador, thank you for doing this. Uh, welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy, the podcast that Chris and I afflict on uh, a group of aficionados of this growing subject. Uh, we appreciate your taking the time. We know it's early in Tokyo. Let me start with a pretty basic question. How did you get into cyber? Were you just assigned to it? Is it part of your normal course of duties? Did you, did you leap up and say, this is what I want? How did you get into cyber? First, I thank you and CSIS for uh, having me here. It's a pleasure and an honor to be participating in the creation of an oral history on GGE and uh, the first OEWG. Well, how did I get into this? Well, it's, it's an assignment, to be frank. Japanese diplomats are assigned to post every three years abroad and every two years in Tokyo. So I think that two years ago, ago uh, some senior officials in my ministry decided that uh, they assigned me, uh, to be precise, to the uh, international security agenda, and uh, cyber is one of them. So I, I covered uh, cyber diplomacy, but also real security issues. Hey, this is a real yeah, no, it's the same. It's the same in state. I mean, people ask, how do you know so much about semiconductors? And it's the answer is because an undersecretary ordered me to negotiate <laughs> semiconductors. So. Okay, you know, but, but you have you ahead, have Chris. a little more you have a little more background that you were just uh, yeah. saying earlier that you had somewhat of a relationship with computers before you 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 had an early history with computers. Can you talk a little bit about that long before your diplomatic career? Yes. Well, I decided to become a diplomat when I was in sixth grade, so <laughs> it comes after that. <laughs> I studied uh, started personal computing in, in high school. So I had a choice of going into science and technology, but, but I decided to go to law because somehow I had made up my mind that I, I would uh, go into diplomacy. Also, I have background in United Nations, uh, multilateral negotiations. I was posted in, in New York Japanese mission to the UN till uh, 2018. That was uh, when we were in the Security Council. And also I have some legal background. I was a deputy director for international law and also director for treaty negotiations. Are you a classmate of uh, Undersecretary Nakamitsu, or am I? We were, we were in, both the in sixth grade together. No, <laughs> we were in college together. Uh, she's a little senior than I uh, by a few years, but we belong to the same Model United Nations of Japan Society, oh, wow. and uh, we were one of the pioneers of that activity. Yeah, she went into uh, international organizations, and I went into sovereign state uh, diplomacy, and uh, it was good that we met in New York when we were in the council, but also in the GG format. And uh, mm -hmm. I made it a point to uh, post a picture of her and I and uh, Patriota in the same room uh, in an article that I, that I wrote on economic security. How long were you the uh, Japan representative before you now taken a new role, but how long did you do that for? So it's exactly two years that I've been ambassador for cyber policy of Japan. I used to amuse back when I was in the State Department that 
unlike many other countries, Japan always had really good cyber diplomats who hit the ground running. You were saying you had to learn this because you were told to learn it. But I was always amazed that a new cyber ambassador would come in and within really weeks, they were on top of it. Not true for every country, I should say, uh, but true from Japan. My only complaint was that they tended to shift so often. I remember having a conversation with one of your predecessors and saying, look, I love you know, Japan cyber ambassadors. You're so great, but you leave too often. And he And he pulled me aside and said, I'm leaving next week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I must confess that in the fourth GGE, there were two changes. That means three persons were in there. And uh, in the fifth, I think there were two persons in there. What happens is that at the deputy director general level, we might be cut short than uh, our full two years term. And that's actually not bad for that person, but it is really bad for institutional memory. So I'm really lucky to have been able to participate two years in the OEWG and GGE fully from the beginning to the end and contributed to the success of both of them. I said it at the end of the GGE and my statement is public on the Japanese Mission website. I really am grateful that the Secretary General picked Japan as one of the 25 members of the GGE in the sixth GGE. It was not a given. And that I was there for the two years. Um, yeah, my my predecessors, um, I think, did a wonderful job. But uh, they uh, for the past, it was the first time in six years that the GG had a report. So I was the lucky one to have been able to be there when when it happened. One of the things that always stood out was your background in international law, particularly in my memory, your knowledge of uh, intellectual property law, and it's a it's a very specialized field, but it's one you were able to broaden out and apply successfully in both the OEWG and the GGE. How um, how did you find the overlap? What was the benefit of having that international law background? Certainly, uh, it was a, of great benefit for me. I think at the end of the day, the success of the two processes was Uh, It owes to many things, but one of the factors was that many countries were convinced of the importance of rulemaking by uh, reaffirming the norms and creating an additional layer, but also of discussing deeper about how international law applies in cyberspace. And I think delegates like myself and others who uh, stressed the importance of international law were able to convince, let's say, middle ground countries, or we could call them the NAM uh, delegates, that that was certainly the case. And I remember, and I, I reread the report that I wrote internally for the first session of the GGE, where I, ex- I explained those things that recognizing state responsibility uh, in particular, mm. and the whole framework of international law and what constituted internationally wrongful acts was very important for victim states rather than for uh, eventual perpetrators in making sure that there are enough tools to react or to counter eventual cyber attacks. And I think the the vast majority of the countries uh, in the case of the OEWG and the members of the OEWG in the case of, uh, sorry, in in the the members of the GGE understood that and that led to the successful outcome of the two reports. Now you you said, um, because I I remember in certain calls that you've been on that you can't take some of the things that GGE did too far. So some people have interpreted the reaffirmation of norms, I'm one of the people, uh, as being, you know, as being an acknowledgement by the countries, all countries, that they're bound by those to some extent, even though they're non-binding and voluntary, and that it creates at least a political obligation on them to follow those. 
but I think you cautioned not to take that too far. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, thank you for raising that. So the, the value of the GG report is that it not only reaffirmed the 11 norms included in the 2015 report, but to, to borrow the words of the Chairman Patriota, it created an additional layer of understanding on the 11 norms. To use my own words, I would say that they provide a detailed explanation of what is expected of countries in uh, abiding by those norms as responsible states. And it is, let's say, explained that they are voluntary norms. Now, on the international law section, uh, there's good uh, progress in the GG report, and that is that I might touch upon it further. So yes, this is a political document. It was never intended to be a, a legally binding document. So it's very good, and I think there's great value that we did this. Uh, in both the norm section and international law section. But it's not uh, legally binding. And I think uh, many members decided that it should not be legally binding because if it's legally binding, we, we can get less consensus. And there, there are some countries calling for a new uh, instrument of cybersecurity. Actually, um, the Russians proposed the text back in 2011. They might have proposed others. but. Uh, some other countries did not like that approach. Uh, I myself said in the EOWG and GGE that uh, let's take it gradually. Let's check how international law applies before we start discussing what we need more. This text, even though it's a political uh, document, has value. And uh, we could quote this more and more to ask countries to abide by their what they committed themselves to in this text, even though it's political. Political documents are everywhere. And Many important international uh, negotiations conclude with a political document, even between Japan and the United States. The so Russians I, uh, actually first proposed a treaty in 1998. I have a text somewhere in my office, and you know, so that and that's what launched the whole GGE process—the failure to make progress towards a treaty. But one thing you said was struck me as interesting in the context of international law. It used to be the third rail of GGE negotiations. You only touched it at your peril. And even at the start of this one, one of the major people on the other side told me, look, I can I can live with what's in the 2015 agreement. I can't go a word further than that. But you actually seem to have done quite well. Can, can you tell us what happened on international law? There does seem to be some progress. Thank you. I think there was a real progress in international law, but with some caveats. So from the outset, I started to have a clear, let's say, a reflection of the term state responsibility. We had the notion in the 2015 report, and that was sufficient enough, but it would have been better to spell out the word state responsibility. I'm glad that it is. Also, many of us asked that the, the term international humanitarian law be explicitly included mm -hmm. In the text, and it was. Some colleagues, I think, in this podcast revealed that it was a little surprising that it ended up there, but it did, even in a, in a negative sentence. So that was uh, another achievement. I also tried to put in the word self-defense. That's where we were not successful, and it's a pity because in the 2011 uh, Russian draft text of an international convention, there's clear reference to the existence of self-defense. So some other party said it should not be there, uh, saying that expressing that there is self-defense might lead to the militarization of cyberspace. And not many uh, other colleagues bought that, but still they, one, one party objected to it and it's not there. 
So we did make progress, and uh, the international human rights language is a little thin this time, but it's still there. And in the norm section, in the uh, explanation to the re relevant norm, it is clearly stated that uh, mass surveillance might be against uh, international human rights law. So it's that there, there was progress, even though it's in the norm section. So uh, uh, that leads me to state that the norm section and the international law section are quite interconnected. And uh, there's good language in the OEWG report about the relationship between uh, norms and international law. Unfortunately, that same language was not adopted in the GG report, although some tried to put it in there. So I had to make a statement in my final uh, statement that that was the case. They're interconnected and whatever is written in the norms section does not uh, delete or, or alter existing rights under international law. What, what was the breakthrough that got, you know, as you say, at least one party, and I think we know who that party was, uh, objected to anything uh, approaching international humanitarian law being mentioned under the theory that that alone uh, would allow cyberspace to be more militarized, which always struck me as being a kind of odd argument. But what what tipped the scale? Was it just making clear that it only applied when conflict happened? Is that what did it? Is that Because that seemed to be a pretty big departure. As, as Jim said, if there was no room for movement and then you get movement, that's great. But But what do you think tripped the scale on that? So that was the surprise. I think uh, the GGE was wrapped up very quickly within the time frame allowed for the last session, the final session, <laughs> owing uh, a lot to Johanna. And uh, I would say she played a great role of, uh, of a catalyst, an accelerator of, of compromises. So at the end, there were important compromises made and uh, agreements on text made with the Russians and with the Chinese. And it was not in one meeting. And uh, several uh, members uh, present in New York, they were present, even though everything was online, they were present in New York, uh, played a great role in bridging the gaps. Now, it happened in one of the last moments that the sentence which you mentioned uh, remained or what was altered and, and was adopted. And uh, it came as a surprise. But my understanding is that although... Uh, China, in this case, we can quote them because they have been explicit in OEWG as well, were cautioning against the use of uh, international humanitarian law uh, because uh, affirmation of it might lead to militarization of cyberspace. My understanding is that although they continue saying that uh, not many members of the OEWG or not many members of the GGE uh, really um, supported that logic. So in the end, they were a little isolated in what they were saying. And they could have said, of course, they would kill the, the report if we did not drop those words. But I think, well, this is this is the game of multilateral negotiations at, at a meeting. Uh, they finally accepted. So they can live it. This proves that they could have lived with it, right? So I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, but Johanna sent me a note in the last couple of days, and it started off by saying that an Australian, a Russian, and an Indonesian walked into a bar. And I thought it was going to be a joke, but it turns out she said that was actually actually one of the sets of meetings she had that helped break the ice there. How much of a hardship was it not being able to meet physically for the two years of the negotiations? I mean, so much of diplomacy is this personal and not formal and open. Was, was it a handicap for you? What, what do you think it shaped? It turns out to have worked out well. You got agreement, 
but were there times when you were nervous about it? I think, yes, uh, there were times uh, I was nervous about it. I was particularly not happy that I could not make it to New York or I could not be there in, a, in the same room with Johanna. But there was constant coordination among the like-minded group. In the case of the GG, um, maybe uh, a little less, no, about 10 members were coordinating all the time. Even during the uh, online sessions, we were chatting and using several applications. So, and, and Johanna was transparent to us. I would have loved to, to have been in that room, but uh, there, were, there was a merit in that many delegates at my level or at, in the GG, the, the experts themselves could always be in the meeting. You know, they didn't have to judge whether they could make the trip or not. They, they could always be in the meeting. So I think that uh, actually uh, direct negotiations took place. Now, I applaud the, the great work of both chairs, uh, Ambassador Labra and Ambassador Patriota. I'm now transiting into climate change negotiations and, and reading the Paris Agreement negotiations, what took place. And it strikes me that Fabius, uh, Patriota, and uh, Lauber ta have taken the similar approach. They have held to the pen till the end. So they didn't open it up for text-based text negotiations or line-to-line -line negotiations in front of everybody. No, they, were the con they controlled the pen. And I think that that helped in the uh, virtual context. They uh, listened carefully to the delegates and members, and uh, they, each time they came with a new draft, they reflected as much as possible those positions, but never fully. And uh, they even had to push back uh, Chinese and Russians' demands for insertion of this and that, or deletion of this and that, by saying they cannot satisfy one party fully, and uh, each party would be have to be satisfied partially. So it, it did happen virtually, and this is new diplomacy. Maybe we'll be traveling less even after COVID-19. It's ironic because Andre uh, was the chair in 2010 who introduced the idea of a chairman's text because we were mired in text-based negotiation. <laughs> I remember Joanna told us that she thought that the hybrid style actually helped in some ways too, as you pointed out, because it gave a little more time for people to consider the text bring it back to capitals in a more quick way and come back with constructive suggestions. What, what would you say were the couple things, one or two things that you really would have liked to have gotten, but didn't get out of this, this round? Well, I mentioned self-defense. Um, the word self-defense were not there, but uh, here again, I made like a disclaimer statement in the last session and I made it a point to that that statement be posted. I said, well, even the UN Charter could not impair the inherent right of self-defense. So how can a political document decide whether self-defense applies in cyberspace or not? Also, um, the relationship between norms and international law, it, it would have been good to have the same language as in the OEW report about uh, norms not altering or deleting existing international obligations. It's certain that people will look at the 6GG report as reference when they discuss whether norms or international law were broken. And I even urge people to use uh, such discussions in domestic or international tribunals uh, in the future. And uh, they might be quoting one paragraph of the 11 norms, like norm 13C, and saying, oh, this is not international law. There's no international law obligation of due diligence. And then others will be saying, no, no, look at the, the relevant paragraphs in the international law section. There is language about uh, due diligence there. And so 
it'll be used. And I, I made it a point to put a disclaimer on it. It's an interesting point you raise about Norm 13C, because obviously that's come up really even since the GG came out in terms of the ransomware actors being harbored by a state. What I've seen is governments don't usually refer to the norms. They may follow the norms. They may you know, suggest that countries like, in this case, Russia have an obligation to take action, but they don't refer to that norm. I guess one question is, would it strengthen the norms if countries started referring to them? Uh, and B, uh, how much can we, I think, use that obligation, even though voluntary, to try to get compliance by countries who are acting as safe havens? I'm following with great interest what's going on between the United States and Russia. And I quote uh, President Biden uh, when he said to the press that he did not believe that the colonial pipeline uh, incident involved the Russian government. But the U.S. has strong reason to believe that criminals who did the attack are living in Russia. And he also said that we, meaning on the international community or the U.S. or Russia and U.S., are working to try to get to the place where there's a sort of an international standard that governments, knowing that criminal activities are happening from their territory, move on those criminal enterprises. And that was in May. In June, there was a bilateral summit, and we're following that closely. So for me, President Biden quoted Norm 13C. And Michelle Markov, of course, was instrumental in having that quote. So more and more, even presidents, uh, heads of states, heads of governments, will be quoting the 11 norms and the GG report. And I think that's the way to go. Uh, it should be used in legal arg arguments or political arguments. Now, whether the US government takes the colonial pipeline attack as an infringement of state sovereignty, that would be the legal question. If they do, or if, they, if their position evolves into accepting that that was an infringement of state sovereignty under international law, that will make the case stronger. And they might be asking for uh, reassurance of, of non-repetition, or they might be asking for uh, reparations for the damages caused. And that would be the full application for me of the law of state responsibility. They're not there yet, but it might evolve. We, we will see. If cases like the continental pipeline cases continue, then uh, more and more states might be saying that was an infringement or that was an intervention. It was not an armed attack, but uh, uh, those criteria and arguments in the GG report will be used. Chris and I, of course, have both been talking to the people doing this, and I don't think reparations are on the table, but I do think a commitment to not see this sort of thing again is very much on the table. And I know in the preparations for the summit, they looked very closely at the GGE report. So one of the things that we've been wondering about is, to the extent you know, how does Japan's role change as a result of this? How does Japan's role in the Quad, which is a new and very interesting grouping, how does that affect cybersecurity? So sort of your old portfolio, your old security portfolio, but you're fresh out, presumably still have views. <laughs> So the Quad is a framework of pragmatic cooperation between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. And uh, um, I say pragmatic because it's not intended to target any particular state or any, any particular position. But it, it is a, a framework of trying to advance the idea of uh, free and open Indo-Pacific and the idea of shared values. Japan's role, I think, is to continue to be an active 
a participant in the rulemaking uh, related to cybersecurity. Now I've done my part. I'm trying to wrap up my job as cyber ambassador. I'm, I have already left voluminous uh, note on what happened and what what Japan should do. Basically, what Japan should do, it, I think, one domestically is to make sure that we implement all the measures allowed uh, by the GG report, including supply chain security management, but particularly critical infrastructure protection. The critical infrastructure protection is both a right of all the states to do so, and also cautioning states not to attack critical infrastructure. The first half, that is for Japan to do more intensively. Fortunately, there was no massive cyber attack, as far as I know, uh, related to the Tokyo Olympics or Paralympics. And uh, we are grateful to our close partners for sharing information uh, on a constant basis on what could happen. And we know that there were some cases in the past Olympics. I think every Olympic since London has had a massive cyber attack. So you're either very good or very fortunate. And we should say congratulations to Japan for hosting such a great Olympics, which I watched much of on television. So uh... I, I did the same. I watched uh, on television. We were not allowed to go into the stadiums. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting issue because, you know, when we had our Japan, we, you still have the Japan-U.S. cyber working group for years. A lot of Japan's interest in this topic, not exclusively, but a lot was driven by we need to make sure that we're in good shape for the Olympics. We need to prioritize cybersecurity for the Olympics. Well, now the Olympics is largely come and gone. You still have the Paralympics, but, but you know, do you, do you think that that's going to stay? Is that going to continue to be a governmental priority or was it more focused on that issue? In some ways, I thought it was good because it kind of rallied the government together to say, we need to make sure this works smoothly. Uh, but now you always worry about the letdown after the, the success. So in some bilateral meetings with our counterparts, our international counterparts, we were requested to share lessons learned from the Olympics and Paralympics. Now, we still have to wait for the success um, cyber-wise of the Paralympics, but uh, we would like to do so. It's good so far that uh, we didn't have bad lessons learned, but uh, we will uh, share with like-minded countries what we did and what happened and what did not happen. But again, I think we owe a lot to uh, international partners, not particularly through me, but uh, directly with our, our national cybersecurity agency gave us their lessons learned and, and cautioned us on some eventual or, or even concrete precedents. So that's what we will do. But uh, domestically, I should have uh, said from the outset that we are revising our national cybersecurity strategy mm-hmm. and we have, our, we have established our digital um, agency. So there will be more and more prioritization of digital transformation, but that means that we'll have more vulnerabilities. So the revision of the cybersecurity strategy is very important. I'm going to miss all that, and I'm going to miss the quad on cyber and emerging tech, but uh, I'm happy that uh, things are, are going in the right direction. I'm also happy that we have participated in the APT40 uh, Public Attribution uh, International Coalition. That was great. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, uh, as both of you pointed out in on several occasions, there's this September 2019 political document, which uh, invites uh, like-minded countries to participate whenever they can in joint public attribution. Now, our statement was not joint, parallelly and uh, simultaneously issued public attribution statements. I think we are domestically more, uh, let's say, confident about being able to contemplate participation in concerted public attribution statements, but also unilateral domestic statements. 
that, that raises the, the question that it always does in these instances that, that that's a real that collective engagement, that collective, even if they're done separately, uh, attribution is very helpful, but unlikely probably to change the activity or the calculus of, of the uh, wrongdoer. So, you know, what do you do next? So, you know, uh, of course, Japan, going back to that 2019 statement, uh, has been one of the countries that's been talked about as kind of this collective uh, response to shared threats. But what do you do? I mean, you know, China and Russia, two different animals, certainly. But what can you do that won't be escalatory? That won't cause more problems than, than you have now, but at the same time, it's going to have an impact. Because I, I fear that, you know, where joint attribution is a good thing for the public, good thing to educate people, good thing to build alliances, but may not change any activity. I think private attribution uh, is the terms sometimes used by cyber diplomats, but uh, talking directly to the other side will also be as important. And in our case, we have had recently several instances where we took up uh, cyber attacks directly with the, the other side. For Japan, that is a new domain, and uh, we will do that. And there, precisely, is where we will have to be using the Gigi report and relevant international law. But Japan also will have to use these uh, norms and international law arguments in order to ask them to stop, not to repeat it, and uh, maybe uh, reestablish the uh, status quo ante or to make preparations. So on a case-by-case basis, we or all the victim states will have to engage in Pacific settlement of disputes that was in the GG report. But that means diplomatic negotiations to have it stopped and then to have concrete and reasonable uh, solution. But, but what happens when, if, 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 you know, hopefully that resolves it. But what happens if it doesn't? You know, what, what do you do then? I mean, because, yeah. Oh, talk- he's tempting me. He knows that I'm <laughs> chomping. I'm not tempting you. I, I'm, I'm on board in this. I do think. I hope he's tempting more. you and not me, because uh, we all know what I'm going to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm tempting him, not you. And the question is, you know, what else can, what else can you practically do? Because in a, in a perfect world, you're right. Peaceful negotiation and settlement disputes would be wonderful, but not always <laughs> likely. So, so you know, what, okay. what can you do? I, I'm being tempted. Um, First, Security Council is there, and Chapter 6 is still about peaceful settlement disputes. And uh, ICJ is there. Uh, Of course, not all countries have signed on to their compulsory jurisdiction, but they're there. So uh, as a reminder, and, and I've said this several times in public, ICJ and Security Council could be used. And then there's Chapter 7 of the UN Security Council. So if there's the threshold of use of force or armed attack or aggression is breached, then we have to go to the Security Council and ask that measures be taken collectively. If the Security Council fails, then we go back to Article 51 and self-defense is there. And even under the threshold of armed attack, we could use legally authorized countermeasures and uh, things that are completely not illegal, like retortion, including uh, personal non grata. So there there are things there, and uh, I'm not sure if Jim's list is fuller, but uh, there are things there. Yes, but at the end of the day, uh, we don't want to create a, a cyber war um, unnecessarily. But the tools have to be there for deterrence. So I agree that public attribution statements are not everything. Um, the, I, I, the Americans convinced me that there's a certain deterrence effect to concerted public attribution statements, and I still believe so, but uh, yes, that might not solve everything. So all, all the tools 
we have to think about and have in our toolbox. And that's one of the things as a wrap up, I'm, I'm stressing to my uh, colleagues in the various agencies in Japan, and I've uh, done a tour of the major agencies of what needs to be done. You mentioned in our preparatory discussion very briefly that uh, GGE in particular had kind of a two-track approach to getting agreement. And Johanna mentioned this too in, in our discussion with her. Tell us a little bit more about that because I think people don't realize how complicated these negotiations can be, even though they're among a small group of nations. So what was the end game like? Uh, what, what did you see on this two-track process? So it was composed of 25 members and uh, there was geographical distribution. I would say there were like-minded countries seen from Japan and US side, uh, like-minded countries, a certain portion. And there were there was the other side uh, countries, including Russia, China, and some who initially took very close positions to theirs. Initially, I had the sense that many or some, uh, an important portion of the non-aligned movement delegates had had a lot of exchange with the Russians and Chinese, and some of them were uh, saying similar things. But gradually, I think the middle ground countries or the NAM countries uh, understood what people like myself were saying on international law, being uh, victims tools. So gradually, the text well, the, the chair always held a pen on the text, but uh, uh, it, I think it gained approval. But the most uh, important points remained in parallel. There was no convergence till the end. And in the last few days, it happened. We, I think we can say this. Uh, it happened uh, with the Russians and with the Chinese. And they had some red lines, which uh, Johanna helped accommodate and in close consultations with the like-minded countries. And... Uh, and Patriota was there in the process, so I trusted uh, the chair, Ambassador Patriota, to make his decision on what would be text at the end approved by all. The last day was very, um, let's say, uh, in suspense. I listened to the major players make statements of approval. This was done before the gavel. So <laughs> Russians, Chinese spoke, US, UK, and Australia spoke, and then I took the floor after that to uh, indicate support. For, for the text. Were there any holdouts? Was there anyone who was reluctant other than the, the Russian and Chinese position has been more or less consistent for years, but how about some of the others? Because you had major new powers in the room. At least in the GGE, you know, I think that the, the end game was with the Russians and with the Chinese and uh, the, the others, I think, were, yeah, comfortable. One thing which was dropped at the last moment was about what is an international obligation entailed by the state which committed an internationally wrongful act. And uh, there were words supported by myself, but another uh, non-aligned movement member, the words like cessation or non-repetition or reparation were there, but it was dropped in the last stage. And, and that was a little unfortunate. That proposal had been there in the text revision after revision from basically the beginning because I took it up in the first substantive session and the other member approached me and said, well, let's put that in the text and it was there. So do you think that happened because the other country just didn't understand the import of it and just didn't want to sign on to something they didn't completely understand or was there something more fundamental in there? No, that's a good question. And that country actually went public in one of the OEWG uh, 
meetings. You know, in the OEWG, you know, that initially published all the comments we made, yeah. and they're still there in the you know the website. So if you look at that, it's there. Uh, that country said that there's no consensus on state responsibility, but as I said in the GGE, we did get the word state responsibility. So. What was their concern? I'm not really sure. Yeah, maybe they didn't want to be in a position in the future where they would be asked reparations. But in an OEWG meeting, I said that there's no sense in discussing a new uh, cybersecurity treaty if you don't accept that there is an international law on state responsibility. Because what if, any, what if anybody violates the terms of that new treaty? What, what are you going to do? Well, if it's any consolation, the Germans came very close to getting a paragraph on retorsion into the 2015 agreement, and we didn't drop it really until the the, the final days. So, and some of it is, and I had suggested to the chairs they might want to avoid this because it is a neuralgic point for the Russians, if no one else. That you have the draft statements on state responsibility that have come out of the the legal house. And it's just like trolling red meat in front of the Russians because they point out it's a draft and it's not agreed. Not that it was them in this case, but but I think their message resonated. No, I think that's one of the things we did discuss in the GGE. One member said, there's no customer international law on state responsibility. And then I said, well, not everything in the draft articles by the ILC is customer international law, but most of it is. is. And uh, it's a codification of customer international law. And I think 24 members understood what I was saying. I even checked the, uh, uh, what uh, the uh, uh, different delegates said in the sixth committee from the same country, and they accepted that uh, there was international customer law on state responsibility. Now, thank you for mentioning that. So we would have loved to have a perfect report uh, in the international law chapter, but nothing is lost because there is international law on state responsibility, and we affirmed it in the text. Now, what is entailed in concrete terms, it's there under customary international law, and most of it is written in the draft article. So we don't have to worry much about it. It sounds like one of your arguments is that the GG, if there's another GG, needs more lawyers. Well, uh, <laughs> we were diplomats. I have legal background, but, but we are diplomats, and these multilateral negotiations usually take place among diplomats. Some do have international law background, but at the end, it's a, it's a game of compromises. The uh, lawyers are not directly involved, and you, you, you have to accept in, what is In acceptable. 2013, we grouped all the lawyers and sent them off into another room so that we could actually make progress. And you didn't recall but, them uh, for several months, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. And they went off and they had a lot of fun. So... Now that you look back on it, what do you think the next step should be for the international community? You have a five-year OEWG uh, agreed to, chaired by a very able Singaporean. You have a program of action that apparently now will come into effect next year. What are the things that these groups should think about? What would you like to see come out of their discussions? It was interesting that uh, Russia proposed a five-year new OEWG, even when the first OEWG had not yielded result. I, I was a little surprised. We could have asked for it uh, in, 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 after the first OEWG result uh, was there. I was a little surprised, but it's not bad that there's that, and we will continue discussing 
things where we have not produced results. But I'm not very optimistic about the outcome of the five-year OEWG. In many negotiations, the real negotiations only take place during the last few weeks, like we witnessed in the OEWG and GG. So we have five years to discuss and then a few weeks to wrap up, right? So we're not sure that we will achieve a better consensus than the first OEWG report. And by the way, the merit of the OEWG report is that the General Assembly members directly affirmed the acquis, international, including the application of international law. And that was a major achievement. But on the contrary, things which were in the 2015 GG report, many of that has been relegated to the chair's summary. Uh, it was consensus. Now it's in the chair's summary. It seems like it's up to discussion, and that is not the case. Anyhow, it's come to a stage of application and implementation. So Japan definitely supports that we adopt the program of action. It's not going to be easy. This also will require a, a vast majority of supporters. But I think uh, France and Egypt are doing a, a great job in uh, expanding the base of support. As we expand, the, the content might be watered down a little, but it will be good that we put all the acquis, that means all the GG reports up until the most recent one, and the OEWG report as things which we have to implement. And uh, there will be a follow-up mechanism. By implementation, it's also up to each country to do what it can, including, uh, as we discussed, public attribution, maybe domestic prosecution, international tribunals, use of the Security Council, etc., and using uh, GG arguments there. And of course, I think uh, capacity building will play an important role in helping each other. Uh, helping doesn't mean that it's a one-way track, but the whole international community to improve their uh, standards or improve their capabilities to fully implement what, what was agreed. Yeah, th and that was an interesting point, that capacity building, especially in the OEWG report, but also in the GG, got a fair amount of ink, you know, that the got attention. And I wonder now if we're unlikely to see a lot more substantive progress on how the rules are applied, which happened at the GG. And now it's all about, as you said, implementation, capacity building, work within regional organizations. Do you think that's really where the future is, at least in the short term? I think that uh, the non-aligned members had, uh, were very realistic about it. In the first half of the negotiations, we talked a lot about capacity building and confidence building. But at the end, I think all, all the members, including the non-aligned movement members, at least in the GG, understood that it was about what were the rules, what were the norms, and what, what is the relevant international law. Now, so Japan will certainly follow up on capacity building. We've been active in Asia, but we will expand. Quad is a, a, me a mechanism where we could discuss with India, Australia, and US about how to better, uh, let's say, conduct capacity building efforts in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm not worried that we will uh, shift only to uh, discussions or, or implementation on capacity building. I forgot to mention that we did a lot of discussion on international mechanisms, including an international attribution mechanism. So it's good that it did not end there, at least seen from the <laughs> Japanese and like-minded point of view. And, but I had difficulty explaining why we didn't want to have it there. So I want to say that we don't want an international body to judge on our behalf who attacked us. Yeah, that, that, that's the point. Yeah, fair point. We had we had Michael Walma on, uh, who gave a very uh, good explanation of why this would be a derogation of sovereigns' rights and not something that Canada would ever 
support. But as, as I was saying, we have time for one more question, or if you have any concluding remarks, anything you'd like to leave as a final message, because we want to be respectful of your time. Well, I think at the end, it's about securing a free, fair, and, and secure cyberspace. It has increased our values, uh, flourishing uh, values, and also it's uh, the modern basis for economic development throughout the world. So uh, we have to judge what we have achieved through whether there's real impact in, in that direction. In Japan, we say free, fair, and secure, but internationally, we also say open. So that's the, the, the thing that we want to protect. I hope even though you're departing the cyber realm for a while, I think you can never escape. So hopefully we'll see you back in some role in the future. And, and thank you for all you've done on behalf of Japan uh, over the last couple of years. Thank you very much for your kind words. And yes, let's, let's keep in touch. I'd like to be active also in this area. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.